You're listening to Theology and Apologetics with Thomas Fretwell, bringing theology to life. Revelation chapter 13, we spent quite a few weeks in Revelation 12, it was a very important chapter. I laid the groundwork looking at what we were calling the unseen war, and now we're moving into Revelation 13, which kind of continues from that thought, and we are talking about this character known as the Beast. And you may have heard him more popularly known as the Antichrist. We've spoken of him a little bit throughout this study. This morning we have to go into a little bit more depth on this issue. Now, to be frank, doing a sermon on such a topic is quite a hard thing to actually... It's not a subject I really want to choose to do. On the other hand, it is in the Scripture, as ministers of the Word. We can't just pick and choose what we preach. We, we want to preach all of it. And on the other hand, it is actually, of course, in there for a reason for our instruction and edification and understanding is the Word of God. So in that way, we still look forward to doing it. And a way I was looking at this as I was studying that really helped me keep my focus on the Lord as we do it is if you think about what we're studying, we're going to be studying Satan and the Antichrist. And if you do it by a matter of contrast... So everything we learn of the, about Satan and the Antichrist, we can immediately say, well, Christ is the exact opposite. And we can contrast like that. So by learning about him, we can still learn about Christ, if you see what I mean. We just do it in a negative way, and it ends up giving us the positive picture of Jesus Christ. And that's a good way to think about it as we go through. I'll draw some of that out as we do it. So it's a matter of contrast. We still learn about the true Messiah, because we're going to see the exact opposite of everything that Jesus Christ stands for in this person. And in that way, it is a fascinating study. It's a deep chapter. It's one of those ones, it's very hard. We have to just go into it quite deep. It's quotes from lots of Old Testament passages. So let's do this. Remember, Revelation 12, the unseen war, the dragon, the woman, Israel, the Messiah. And we saw this whole symbolic picture of Satan persecuting the Jewish people throughout history in an attempt to stop God's plan for Messiah in this world. We then looked about his plan trying to destroy the Jewish people in the final days of the tribulation. The end of, la- the end of chapter 12, we talked about that place in Edom where they would flee for refuge, this second exodus event, and the Messiah would not, the Antichrist rather, would not be able to reach them there and that Jesus would actually in fact come back. And I shared to you that, that small view that some people hold, which I hold, about the second coming actually happening in that area in Edom to protect the Jews, treading the winepress of the wrath of God, and then moving up to the Mount of Olives. So we are, that's our context here, as well as everything we've, heard, we've gone through in this study. So let's get into chapter 13. And what we are going to see here is a replication of the Trinity. We're talking about Satan here as the master imitator, the ultimate deceiver, and he's very good at that, and we're going to see some of his strategies this morning. So verse 1, And the dragon stood on the sand of the seashore. And then I saw a beast coming up out of the sea, having ten horns and seven heads. And on his horns were ten diadems, and on his heads were blasphemous names. So this thought seems to continue from the previous chapter, which is why now we see him standing on the seashore. He's been kicked out of heaven, if you remember. And it's almost as if there is a connection here being made with the dragon and the rise of this beast, which in fact there is. The idea is that Behind this coming world ruler, as we could call him, the Antichrist, there is the malevolent power of Satan. He is the one energizing that, and the text is going to make this very clear for us. And this seems to kick these final three and a half years of Earth's history into another level. 
which is why Jesus called this part the Great Tribulation. This is the final era. We keep getting this time, this three and a half years mentioned, don't we? 42 months, in days sometimes, and then in the Jewish reckoning, time times and half a times. We've seen all of that. We'll see it again this morning. He says, then I saw a beast. And this is the first beast. We're going to see two beasts in this chapter, in fact, along with the dragon. And that's our three. That's our unholy trinity, as you could call it. But this is the first beast closely identified with the dragon. And this is this coming world ruler that we've been speaking of as we go through the book of Revelation. He is called the Antichrist in popular culture. He's actually only called that really once in scripture. But he has many names, just as Christ has many names, that all tell us little bits about him. He is the one we're talking about here. We have a picture of a beast, but of course, remind you, this is the apocalyptic language. He is talking about a person here. This will be an actual proper person on this earth. And this is Satan's attempt at a counterfeit Messiah. This is his last effort, remember. He has the final three and a half years. Now, I want you to see the imitation that is happening here between Satan and Messiah. Of course, all under God's approval. It's almost like he's giving him his final chance because he knows he's not going to succeed, and then we know what happens in the end. But final three and a half years of the tribulation, now how long was Jesus' ministry, his public ministry on this earth? It was three and a half years, you see. So that's our first parallel here. That's our first imitation that we get here. And we call the divine son taking on human flesh, the incarnation, don't we? That's the popular, popular term that we use, the theological term for the incarnation. That's what happened when God the Son, the eternal God the Son, became flesh at the incarnation that we study around Christmas time. Now, there is something similar happening here in Satan's mind, almost like a, a false incarnation, if I could call it that. Now, it is a counterfeit. I don't believe it's the same as what we would call the union that Christ had, but it's a counterfeit. But this is what Satan is trying to present to the world. And it is good enough to deceive the world. That's the thing we want to get. At this time, everyone is fooled by this. Look how Paul describes it in 2 Thessalonians. Speaking of this one, he says, The one who's coming is in accord with the activity of Satan, with all power and signs and false wonders, with all the deception of wickedness for those who perish, because they did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. They did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. This one will come with all the power of Satan, and this will include false signs and false wonders, that is, miracles. That is things that cannot be explained in the physical realm. This is supernatural things he is talking about here. But then look also in 2 Thessalonians verse 3, chapter 2, verse 3 in 2 Thessalonians. Paul calls this person, he gives him a name. He says, let no one in any way deceive you, for it will not come unless the apostasy comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction. Son of destruction. It's a very unique title that we have there. It's a very unique phrase. In fact, it's only used one other time in the scripture. And there's a link, like I always say, there's a link quite often when you find these things happen. There is a link between the use of this name. If you think about who else was called the son of destruction, just to give you a clue, the the Greek destruction there can also be translated perdition. It's the... Judas Iscariot, that's absolutely right. Yeah, so let's turn. If you turn with me to John 17, you'll see this drawn out. And there's a connection between what we see going on in Judas's life, obviously the betrayer, and in this situation with the beast here. John 17, while I was with them, this is Jesus speaking, I was keeping them in your name, which you have given me. I guarded them, and not one of them perished, but the son of perdition. That's the same word, son of destruction, 
so that the scripture would be fulfilled. So you have this unique title given to the beast here whose coming is in accord with all the power of Satan and Judas. Now, that might seem a little harsh on Judas there. You could say, yes, I know he betrayed the Lord, but wasn't he just human? But I want to draw out something else for you, something that happened to him before he did this. John 13, 26 to 27, look at this. Jesus then answered, that is the one for whom I shall dip the morsel and give it to him. You remember this scene? So that when he had dipped the morsel, he took it and he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. And then look at verse 27. After the morsel, Satan then entered him. And therefore Jesus said to him, what you do, do quickly. That's a very unique phrase there. We don't really see that in anything else in all the scriptures. Satan actually entered Judas at this time in order to fulfill the Lord's purposes. But what we have here is this connection. The son of perdition, the son of destruction, is someone that Satan was actually almost possessing and controlling like that. That is the same thing we're being told here about this man called the Beast, the Antichrist. He comes with all the activity and power of Satan because he has got that sort of relationship with Satan again. It's almost like a false incarnation. That's what, what is basically happening here. Remember, in this chapter, we're going to see Satan develop his unholy trinity as a counterfeit for the real God. This is the first thing, the false son. Satan entered him, a false incarnation. And then we see this character pretend in Scripture to be the ultimate counterfeit. He tries to accomplish everything that he's always wanted. Satan does, that is, through this man. Tries to get his kingdom, tries to get the world to worship him, tries to kill all the saints. All these things that he has tried to do throughout Scripture. He seems like for this final three and a half years, he has the authority to do that. But I want you to bring out, to see the counterfeit. It's an imitation, but it's a counterfeit imitation because nothing can obviously compare to the true Messiah that we're seeing. Arthur Pink, in his book called The Antichrist, he, it's a long passage, I'm going to read it all to you. He brings out some of these contrasts for us. He says, Do we read of Christ going forth to sow the good seed? Matthew 13. Then we also read of the enemy going forth to sow his tares, an imitation wheat. Do we read of the children of God? Then we also read of the children of the wicked one. Do we read of God working in his children, both to will and to do his good pleasure? Then we are also told that the prince of the power of the air is the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience. Do we read of the gospel of God? Then we also read that Satan has a gospel, another gospel, which is not another. Did Christ appoint apostles? Then Satan has his apostles too. Are we told that the spirit searcheth all things, yea, the deep things of God? Then Satan also provides his deep things. Are we told that God, by his angel, will seal his servants in their foreheads? So also we read that Satan, by his angels, will set a mark in the foreheads of his devotees. Does the Father seek worshippers? So also does Satan. Does Christ quote scripture? So also does Satan. In Christ, is Christ the light of the world? Then Satan also is transformed as an angel of light. Is Christ denominated the lion of the tribe of Judah? And then the devil is also referred to as a roaring lion. Do we read of Christ and his angels? Then we read of the devil and his angels. Did Christ work miracles? So also will Satan. Is Christ seated upon a throne? So also will Satan be. Does God have a city, the new Jerusalem? Then Satan has a city, Babylon. Is there a mystery of godliness? So also there is a mystery of iniquity. Does God have an only begotten son? So we read of the son of perdition. Is Christ called the seed of the woman? Then Antichrist will be the seed of the serpent. The son of God, also the son of man, then the son of Satan will also be the man of sin. Is there a holy trinity? Then there is also an evil trinity. And that is what we're bringing out here in this chapter. Now, of course, let me just remind you, 
This is a counterfeit. It does not have the power of the true God. And as we're going to learn as we go through Revelation, God is obviously in charge of this and he is sovereign in this whole thing. He knows in three and a half years he's coming to smash this kingdom and set up his own and the victory will be won. Yet all of this is accomplished in the man we're talking about, this coming world ruler, by the working of Satan. Satan's intent is to deceive the world. He wants to put himself in the place of God and he wants to receive worship. And when you go through the names of Christ, all those wonderful names, hundreds of them in the scripture, we learn something about him every time, don't we? If you actually go through and look at the names of Antichrist, you'll find this man is talked about quite a lot in the Bible. We learn a lot from his names. I'll give you a few. Jesus is called the Christ. That means the anointed one, the Messiah. He is called the Antichrist, the one who stands in place of the anointed one, the false Messiah. Jesus is the man of sorrows, Isaiah 53. The Antichrist is the man of sin in 2 Thessalonians. Jesus is the son of God in John 1. The Antichrist is the son of perdition in 2 Thessalonians. Jesus is the seed of the woman in Genesis 3. The Antichrist is the seed of the serpent in Genesis 3. Jesus is the lamb in Isaiah 53. The Antichrist is the beast in Revelation 13. He is the holy one, Jesus Christ, in Mark 1. The Antichrist is the wicked one in 2 Thessalonians. Jesus Christ is the truth. And in John 8, the Antichrist is the father of lies, or Satan is the father of lies. In Isaiah 4.2, Jesus is the glorious branch. In Isaiah 14, the Antichrist is the abominable branch. In John 10, Jesus is the good shepherd. In Zechariah 11, the Antichrist is the idle shepherd. So you see, although we're going to see an imitation of an unholy trinity, the Lord is very clear of what he thinks of this unholy trinity. They are the names there, the man of sin, the Antichrist, the son of perdition, the beast, the wicked one, the lie, the abominable one, and the idle shepherd. That is really who we're exposing here as we go through this chapter. So this is the beast. Now let's look at some of the rest of verse 1, please, back in Revelation. It says that he sees him coming up out of the sea. And this gives us a clue to his origin. Now there's a big debate in Bible prophecy about whether the Antichrist will be a Jew or whether he will be a Gentile. And it's been raging for many, many years, that debate. Books, all sorts of different arguments and opinions. Now to understand this chapter, like I said, we really need to understand that most of this is coming from the book of Daniel. Daniel is almost like, you could say, Daniel is the ground floor to a revelation which is probably the roof of the story of the building, if you could put it like that. You won't really understand much of how the roof stays up if you don't look at the foundation, you see? That's the idea. Daniel works like that, and a lot of these allusions are coming from Daniel. So what does the sea mean? This imagery that we find of the sea, we turn to Daniel 7, and we see where this is referencing. Daniel 7 is a chapter that's referenced a lot in this chapter. I'll read to you the the relevant part. Daniel 7, verses 2 to 3. And Daniel said, I was looking in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea, and four great beasts were coming up from the sea, different from one another. Now you see the sea here is symbolized as the mass of Gentile nations, in contradistinction, or in distinction rather, to Israel, which is often referred to as the land. We see that in apocalyptic language. In Daniel's prophecy, we see these four beasts that he saw coming up out of the sea 
were the four Gentile empires that would appear on the earth during what we call the time of the Gentiles, Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome. These were the succession of empires that we see over the ancient world described by these different beasts. It's actually an amazing prophecy written in the 5th, 6th century BC, and it predicts world history accurately. It's a very amazing prophecy. But it also says that the Antichrist is said to arise in the final form of one of these empires out of the sea. If we're consistent with the imagery in the prophecy, that, that strongly indicates that he will come out of the Gentile nations. And there are, there are other arguments for that too. But let's move on. Verse 1, it says, Having ten horns and seven heads, and on his horns were ten diadems, on his heads were blasphemous names. And the beast which I saw was like a leopard, and his feet were like those of a bear, and his mouth like the mouth of a lion, and the dragon gave him his power and his throne and great authority. Now, do you remember last week? Or well, during chapter 12, we saw the dragon had the same thing, the ten horns and the seven heads, and we talked a little bit about that. I won't go into it in huge amounts of depth, except to say it is again coming from the prophecies of Daniel. They are references to kingdoms under the authority. Ten kingdoms and seven rulers and seven heads, all of these things. You have to actually go through the whole book of Daniel to work them out, but it is, you, you can do that. I'll read to you just the relevant scriptures so you can see where this imagery is coming from, and then I'll summarize it for you. Daniel 7, verse 7 to 8. So this is Daniel's vision in chapter 7 again. I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast... Dreadful and terrifying, extremely strong. It had large iron teeth. It devoured and crushed and trampled down the remainder with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. You see, there are your ten horns. So that's what it's referring to. While I was contemplating the, the horns, behold, another horn, a little one, came up among them. That's speaking of the Antichrist. And three of the first horns were pulled out by the roots before it. And behold, this horn possessed eyes like a man and was, had a mouth uttering great boasts. And then a little bit more down in verse 23, Daniel 7. Thus he said, the fourth beast will be a fourth kingdom on the earth, which will be different from all the other kingdoms. It will devour the whole earth and tread it down and crush it. As for the ten horns, out of this kingdom ten kings will arise, and another will arise after them. He will be different from the previous ones, and he will subdue three kings. He will speak out against the Most High and wear down the saints of the Highest One and he will intend to make alterations in time and law and they will be given into his hand for time, times and half a times. Notice there's your indicator. Time, time, that, what was that? Three and a half years. A, a ruling king will emerge who will be different from all these other kings and he will subdue all kings and take over the entire domain of the kingdoms of these ten kings rule. This is speaking of the one we're reading about in Revelation 13, this coming world ruler who will gain control of the earth. And we know this because it says he will speak out against the Most High. Who speaks out against the Most High? That's Satan. What have we just learned about this coming world ruler? Satan enters him and energizes him. His coming is within all the power and activity of Satan. This is what is going on here. These ten kings speak of a global coalition of governments that will be controlled ultimately by this final world ruler. And this will happen for the final three and a half years. It's a fascinating study. We could go into that more, but we won't. But what I believe this is emphasizing is that this man will have political global control at this point. And that's a point for us to dwell on. We hear a lot of talk about one world governments, don't we? This is the direction that this is going under the control of this man. And as we're going to see as we go through the rest of chapter 13, this will happen politically, this will happen economically, and this will also happen religiously. 
all of these things combined, Satan, as the prince of the power of the air, has control of all of those things unless Christ is in them. But at this point, he's having authority over, he's having his day, he's three and a half years, you could say, with the beast. And during this chapter, at some point, we will do an interlude study about utopia, utopianism, globalism, things that we see in our world today and the book of Revelation. And I'll go into some of these things in a little bit more depth, but that will probably be at the end of this chapter. Verse 2 in Revelation 13. And the beast which I saw was like a leopard, and his feet, his feet were like those of a bear, and his mouth like the mouth of a lion. And the dragon gave him his power and his throne and great authority. Now again, if you're a keen Bible student, you'll recognize this imagery again. Lion, bear, and a leopard. It again comes from the prophecies of Daniel. Let me read it to you. Daniel 7, verse 4 to 6. He's again describing these world empires. The first was like a lion and had wings of an eagle. I kept looking until its wings were plucked and it was lifted up from the ground and it made it stand on two feet like a man. Verse 5. And behold, another beast, a second one resembling a bear, was raised up on one side. And then verse 6. After this I kept looking and behold, another one like a leopard. Now what you find that is very interesting, when Daniel writes about it, notice the order. Lion, bear, leopard. This is very significant. This is how we know the interpretation that I'm giving is pro probably the most accurate one because of this chronology. From Daniel's perspective in the 6th century BC, that's where he was, looking forward at the succession of world empires. It was Babylon, the lion, bear, Persia, and Greece. So he was 6th century looking forward. That's why he writes about it like that. When we get to Revelation, John obviously is not in the 6th century. He's in the 1st century. He's in the Roman Empire at this time. So when he lists them, he's looking backwards. And that's why we have them in the exact reverse order, because he's looking back to the time of Daniel when the prophecy first started. So if you look at it like that, you can see, of course, they're both accurate. They're both completely reversed because they're both looking from different time periods, one looking forward, one looking back. And that is how, really, we know that these are the empires that he's talking about. It's quite fascinating when you do that. Let's get back to Revelation. It says, And the dragon gave him his power and his throne and great authority. Again, notice the counterfeit here. You see, the real son was given the authority, was given authority of the father, wasn't he? He does all things in his father's name. And he was also promised the throne of David, even at his birth when they were prophesying over him. I shall give you the throne of your father David. That is what the real son did. Now we see the counterfeit. Satan gives him the authority that he has and gives him his throne. And he even offered this to Jesus Christ once. Do you remember that? In the temptation, he took Jesus to the hill and he said, I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world. Obviously, Jesus quoted scripture at him, but this time his plan works in that respect. He has one that will accept that offer and he gives it to him. This is the coming world ruler known as the Antichrist. Verse 3, I saw one of his heads as if it had been slain and his fatal wound was healed and the whole earth was amazed and followed after the beast. Now remember, the theme of imitation here, ask yourself, Jesus was an itinerant rabbi for three and a half years and he made a big noise in Israel Still wasn't really that well known outside of Israel during his lifetime. What was it that catapulted Jesus from being an itinerant rabbi in Israel, Messiah of Israel, to a worldwide universal figure that everyone knows? That only happened after the resurrection, didn't it? His death, burial, and resurrection. Satan knows that. So what do you think Satan wants to do now to try and emulate that? He needs his man to have a similar experience. He needs his false messiah to have a death and resurrection experience to the world. 
Now, tr quite how he accomplishes it is we, we don't really know. I don't want to speculate. All I would say is we know it's a counterfeit in some respect, but we also know he is given power to do these sorts of things at that point. But regardless, this is what the text is getting at here. One of these heads, this final head we read about in Daniel the Antichrist, he receives a fatal wound as it is healed. And the text makes this actually very clear for us what is going on here. The little phrase that you see in the Greek there translated as if it had been slain. That is the exact same wording that you find that we read earlier in Revelation 5-6 that speaks about the lamb being slain. The one, remember we saw him at the center of the throne room of God, the lamb slain. It's the exact same word making the connection here that we see. The idea is he is presenting his man as the same sort of thing. He received a fatal wound but he was brought back to life. And what does that do? Look, the whole earth was amazed and they followed after the beast. You see, at this point, the church is gone, restrainers gone. You know, the, all you have is the 144,000 going around the world at this point. People are being given over to this lie. It's so powerful, it's so strong. This leader is so charismatic. He's fixing the world problems. He's taking control of all these things. People are giving over their freedoms and government to him. And now, he steps up into that point where he's not just a political leader, now he takes the mantle of being this religious leader. Remember, we see him enter the temple, proclaim himself as God, don't we? And people are amazed, they're in awe. He's had this resurrection experience and now they're giving themselves to him. They're amazed at him, they followed after the beast. And then look in verse four, not only that, they worship the dragon because he gave his authority to the beast. They worship the beast saying, who is like the beast, who is able to wage war with him? You see, this amaz amazement and wonder soon manifests in worship for the beast. This is a note for us. Be very careful if you're chasing miracles. Miracles can happen. Supernatural activity happens in this world. You find it in many different religions. We don't chase miracles. You might end up being deceived if you do that. But not that God cannot do miracles. He has many times. The resurrection being the chief miracle in that regard. But this is a warning here. Their admiration turns to worship of the one who is given authority by the beast. Thus, they're actually worshipping the dragon at this point through the beast. That is what is going on. And Satan here comes as close as he will ever get, really, to his universal aspirations. Do you remember in Isaiah 14, when the Lord addresses Satan, how you have fallen from heaven, star of the morning, son of the dawn. You have been cut down to earth. You have weakened the nations. But you said in your heart, these are Satan's de desires, I will ascend to heaven, I will raise my throne above the stars of God, I will sit on the mount of assembly in the recesses of the north, I will ascend above the heights of the clouds, I will make myself like the most high. That's what he's always wanted to do. And to do that, he has to have worship. And this is what we see going on here in this text. This is about as close as he'll ever get. His man, his Messiah figure on the world, indwelt by him, doing miracles, the world adoring him and worshipping him. This is exactly where Satan wants. And they cry out, who is like the beast and who is able to wage war with him? This is a very pointed connection in the text. It takes us back to Exodus, the Song of Moses. We looked at this on Wednesday night, actually. The song of Moses was what the Israelites sang when they were redeemed from Egypt. And they said it like this. Who is like you among the gods, O Lord? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in praise, working wonders? That's the true. The counterfeit now we see the earth saying this to the beast. Who is like the beast who is able to wage war with him? This is what a deceived earth will be proclaiming at this point. But let me tell you, there is one coming who is able to wage war against the beast. In fact, there is one coming who will destroy him with the very brightness of his presence. And that is what we read about. He picks 
One war too many, he takes on the king of kings, and he himself will be humbled. Verse 5, there was given to him a mouth speaking arrogant words and blasphemies. An authority to act for 42 months, notice the time period again, was given to him. And he opened his mouth in blasphemies against God to blaspheme his name, his tabernacle, that is those who dwell in heaven. So here we see the character of the dragon behind this man. He speaks blasphemies against the Most High. Again, this is a reference to a prophecy in Daniel. Daniel 11 verse 36, speaking of this man, says, The king does as he pleases. This is the small king. He will exalt and magnify himself above every god, speak monstrous things against the god of gods, and he will prosper until the indignation is finished, for that which is decreed will be done. He's allowed to speak against God to speak these blasphemous words for 42 months. But notice where blasphemy comes from. This is a fascinating little phrase I noticed. It says he opened his mouth. It's his words that are being referred to here, what he is saying. Speech is always given in the Bible as a vital indicator of a person's state before God. You can tell a lot by a person from the words that they say. This is why we don't use the Lord's name in vain. This is why that's such a serious teaching, that we don't take the Lord's name in vain. This is, in fact, why many people don't even want to say the Lord's name. They say things like Hashem or Adonai, why we see these in, in the Jewish tradition they do that. Speech is a vital indicator of a person's state before God. But we do see here that Satan is blaspheming. Now, we know today, even in our world today, the Lord's name is blasphemed among the nations by those around us every day in our schools, in our workplace, all day, every day. If you could actually stand back and imagine for one moment how many times every single day, every second probably of every single day, at somewhere on the globe, someone is blaspheming the name of the Lord. Think about it. Must be, and the Lord knows every single occurrence of this, and he allows it in his mercy for this time because he's patient and long-suffering. He allows man to have his day in that respect because he knows this is the era of the gospel still. The gospel is going out. But there is a day when he will stop that. Just like he said to Israel, Ezekiel 36, I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, which you have profaned in their midst. And then the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when I prove myself holy amongst them. He will not allow this to go on forever. The Lord will vindicate his name. And in Zechariah 14, it says, In that day the Lord will be king over all the earth. In that day the Lord will be the only one, and his name the only one. His name will be the only one. Let's look at the next verse. It was also given to him to make war with the saints, to overcome them, and authority over every tribe, tongue, and people, and nation were given to him. This is again, quoting from Daniel, I won't read the whole text to you here, but we see from the book of Daniel again that this person will speak out against the Most High. He'll wear down the saints. He has authority, obviously, to do what he's pleasing at this point. This is how Daniel and Revelation are connected. He overpowers the saints, and then it says, an authority over every tribe, people, and tongue, and nation was given to him. This is the extent of his rule. This is what, when I say global government of the Antichrist, this is what I'm referring to. Every tribe, every people, every tongue, and every nation at this point will come under his rule. And I believe this also shows us how he will persecute the states. You know, he, he's the one person, this man. I, I very much doubt he's going to be going around the world individually persecuting all these people. He'll be focused in one particular area, probably. But how will he do it? He'll do it through his government. 
government have always been the worst persecutors of people who go against the government, if you say that. History, even in this age, proves that. Imagine what it's going to be like in this age we're talking about here, where all of the restraint of the church, the Sultan Light and the restrainer has gone, and he has full control here over every tribe, tongue and nation. This is how he will do that, through the government. These are the nations that actually worship him. They're doing his bidding at this point. Remember, they're amazed in wonder at the beast. This is what we've seen here. Even if you go back into Europe, wide Europe, during the, the time of the war, and you study what the Nazis did, one of the shocking things that you'll find out is that quite often it wasn't necessarily the Nazis who were persecuting the Jews across occupied Europe. Quite often it was the nations themselves that would start their own police forces, their own secret brigades, that would take great glee in showing their new overlords how, much, how obedient and loyal they were, and they would hand the Jews over to them. I think that's just a microcosm of what we're going to see here, how easily this will happen. These people who are worshipped and are amazed at the beast and have no truth in them, they have been deceived at this point. It does say, once you start worshipping the beast, there's no going back for you at that point. They refused the love of the truth so as to be saved. And they have chosen, have chosen poorly in this respect. But that is how this will be done. Verse 8, all who dwell on the earth will worship him. That shows you the extent don't miss, that's a massive statement. All who dwell on the earth will worship him. Who's, everyone whose name has not been written from the foundation of the world in the book of the life of the Lamb who has been slain. We get this phrase again. These people who dwell on the earth. We've seen it a lot through Revelation. This is referring to these people who have rejected the gospel and they've taken their, they placed their lot with the beast, basically, at this time. It is their ultimate allegiance. They wander after the beast. They've fallen for the deception. The power and attractiveness of this person, the, the angel of light, as he calls Satan, it's so strong that all will fall under his spell. Only those who hold to the testimony of Jesus will not. And is that not the same for our age too, in many ways? We might not see the battle so fiercely in our comfortable age that we have now, as in this area, but it is still the exact same battle going on in the spiritual terms. And this is what it's getting at. Only those who are property of the Lamb will not be deceived in this age. And that is signified by having their name in his book, the Lamb's Book of Life. And then look at verse 9. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. And this is almost like an interlude. He's just laid down all this very heavy stuff about this person coming. And then he just stops. John, this is the author, and he says, He who has an ear, let him hear. Note the truth that this is saying. It's a dramatic point in the text. Make sure at all costs, at the most serious point of attention in your life, that your name is in the Lamb's Book of Life. That's what it's saying. God does not want any of this for any of his people, really, or for anyone. He wants them to have their name in the Lamb's Book of Life. If you are not a believer in Jesus this morning, God, I believe, is saying through the text now, as it clearly simply says, hear this. He does not want you caught up in this. This is not what humans were made for. Accept his offer of salvation. Get your name in the land's book of life. Turn from your sins and you will not be deceived by this. Confess him as Lord and rejoice today that we still are in the day of salvation where we have this opportunity to do this. However, there is also something coming that we learn when these opportunities will be few and far between. The power of the evil one will be on this earth like never before and people will be deceived. It is only Jesus that stops this. Now, another thing about this phrase, notice, you probably found that phrase familiar, right? He who has an ear, let him hear. You remember Jesus used to say that when he was on the earth a lot, when he was making his point. Matthew 11, notice how he says it. 
And this is a good argument for me that the church is not in this period of history. Like I've been teaching through this book, we are gone before the tribulation starts. This is a very good argument in the text for that. Before the church was ever on this earth, so when Jesus was preaching in the Gospels, before the church was formed post-Pentecost, he always used to say this, Matthew 11, if you are willing to accept it, John himself is Elijah who is to come. He who has an ear, let him hear. That was his phrase. However, we noticed at the beginning of this book, didn't we, in the church age, he says this seven times in Revelation 2 to 3 when he's speaking to the church and he says it like this, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. Seven times he says that, let him hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. And then now again, as I'm arguing, post-church era, he drops that little phrase again and he's back to what he was saying before the church existed. He's saying, let him who has an ear hear. And he forgets a little bit about the church. And that, for me, that's a very textual indicator that, that what we're saying about this book is correct. And when he says hear, he's saying hear the truth of God. And when he says hear the second time, he's saying it in the sense of hear and believe. That's what we need to do. We hear the word of God and we believe the word of God. Now, in Revelation, I believe we're in this period where the church has gone and he's missing that part off specifically. Let's look at the final verse and then we'll close this out. If anyone is destined for captivity, to captivity he goes. If anyone kills with the sword, with the sword he must be killed. Here is the perseverance and faith of the saints. Basically, this is a summation verse. It tells us that the earth dwellers who are doing his bidding, the, be the beast's bidding at this point, will probably, will definitely suffer the same fate. They will be killed. It also implies that this final period of history, there is no other option, really, at this point. Most likely, if you're a believer, you will suffer martyrdom. Few will probably make it to the coming of the Lord. If you are a member of the beast, your future is set in stone in many ways. You will be part of that, what we call the winepress of the wrath of God. These are not good choices, which is, again, why I believe this book is written. Obviously, we've had this for 2,000 years, haven't we, for the church. That's why he keeps saying, hear me, hear me. Let him who has an ear hear you need to put your name, get your name in the Lamb's Book of Life. That is what we do with this. And at the end it says, this is the perseverance and faith of the saints. At this point in the story of Revelation, in light of everything that we've read about this world, faith is the only thing that they have. Everything else is taken away, every comfort, every privilege, every security, except the faith that they have. And you know what the Bible's telling us? That's enough. That's all they need, that faith that gets them into the kingdom. And this, although we're speaking of the future here, this is the same for us today. How do we guard against deception today? How do we make sure that our fate does not end up the same as these earth dwellers? How do we escape the deluding influence that will come upon the world? We make sure we're safe in Jesus, through faith and through obedience to his word. Romans 8.35, who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, or sword? Just as it is written, for your sake we are being put to death all day long. We were considered sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. He who has an ear, let him hear. Amen. You've been listening to Theology and Apologetics. 
This podcast is supported by your generous donations. To help us continue to bring you great content, please visit our Patreon site at patreon.com slash theology and apologetics. If you've been blessed by this podcast, please leave us a review and remember to connect with us on social media. For more resources, please go to theologyandapologetics.com. Thanks for listening.